back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 59, when we have Brenna Clark Gray from Thompson Rivers University. She calls herself the Jackie Weaver of EdTech on Twitter. She also describes herself as the one who puts the care back in, but I don't care about EdTech. You can find her at TRU, where she is the coordinator, educational technologies at Thompson Rivers University. Her research interests include history and open tenure processes. This is the second time that Brenna's been on the show. If you want to catch the first episode that she was on way back in episode 28, July last year, go ahead and find that in your favorite uh, podcast platform. Anyway, really want to take the time to thank you for taking the time to be here and uh, hope you like the show and we'll meet you on the other side. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you've tuned into this one because we have brought back Brenna Clark Gray. This is your second time coming back to the podcast. Couldn't be more thrilled <laughs> because there's not, it's not like there's a lot of stuff going on and you know, you could just, yeah, I, I can be on a podcast. No problem. I, I got lots of time for that. So love having you back, Brenna. It's, it's a joy. Um, what's up? What's, what's happening? Oh, Wow. I don't know. I'm thrilled to be here. I really am. It's nice <laughs> to chat. It's uh, put aside uh, several questions about setting up forums in Moodle to come and chat with you today. So you it's go. good. Yep. Yep. It's good. Yeah, we're uh, everything is still on fire, and otherwise, I'm fine. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the dumpster fire has been downgraded to a smolder in nice. some cases. Nice. In some things, but. Uh, yeah, there's a little there's a little conference coming up from BC campus called Cascadia, and so I have heard about it. Yeah, yeah, of which of which you are a keynote, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, I think. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's all good, but uh, I'm teaching a couple night classes this term, which is nice. fun. That's a different animal. Yeah, different animal. And, when uh, I uh, when I first went back into the classroom after my maternity leave, I didn't have any childcare because okay. uh, I was in Vancouver and. <laughs> I also had to pay rent. Um, and so I went back and I was only teaching night classes and Saturday classes and it was Uh, wild. I loved it. I especially loved the Saturday students. They were cool. Um, but I always felt like, did you watch community when it was on? No. Oh man. There's this one whole episode called introduction to conspiracy theories. (laughs) That's all about (laughs) the one character's taking a course on conspiracy theories and Everybody else thinks his professor doesn't exist because he only teaches night school and his name is Professor P. Professorson. And uh, (laughs) one of my pals at Douglas changed my nameplate to say that I shared my office with Professor P. Professorson. It was great. Nice. Yeah, good. This is what you wanted me to come on and talk about, right? Episodes Uh, of television from five years ago. This is all good. (laughs) I I, I taught a Saturday class too. And I love the students. Mm -hmm. The Saturday, the Saturday crowd is different from the evening crowd, different from the day crowd. Right. Yeah. And I love the Saturday crowd. I'm not a big fan of the all day Saturday course though. I did. I was teaching academic writing. So two classes. So it was like eight 30 to 1130 and then Mm -hmm. one 30 to four 30. And that was a, that was a push. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was a lot, but, yeah. but you know, it meant I didn't have to pay for childcare. So, well, yeah, I mean, that's a good trade off, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. But that Saturday crowd, you're right. It's a totally different <gasps> crowd. 
so driven, so motivated, and Mm -hmm. they just have stuff. Like there's a reason they're in class on Saturday and they've got stuff and they don't want you to waste their time. And they're (laughs) just, they're there. I I loved that group. Oh yeah. I I still look back on my one, the one Saturday class that I ever taught in in three years, I've been doing part-time studies work for the school of business anyway. And I had one guy who I think was, was, or so near to dyslexic and low reading ability. Unbelievable. Um, not, not unbelievable to think in the way of, oh my goodness, come on, man, this is 2020, right? Or 2018 when it was, but like he worked doubly hard Mm -hmm. than everybody else. And it was, it was that student that really put me in the trajectory of alternate assessment. Cool. Like he was the first one he, he, like he came up to me and he goes, do I, I have trouble reading. I'm like, okay, that's no problem. Can there, and this is PTS, right? So there's, there's no infrastructure for right. him to go and get readers and scribes and the whole thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And plus he wouldn't have any documentation and all that's to back it up. And, uh, and I'm like, well, your wife can, she can read it too. And he's like, you trust me to do that? I'm like, dude, this is adult education, man. Yeah. Like, of Who course I trust you. Of course I trust you. Yes. Yeah. Like you, you paid so many hundreds of dollars to be here. Like, okay, you cheat. It's on you. I'm, I'm okay. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I had this idea of like, well, why don't, why don't you get your wife to just videotape you on the phone answering questions? Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, you'd let me do that. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. of course I had no, I had no idea of how much actual, you know, mega gigabyte it would take <laughs> yeah. up. But, and I'm like, yeah, no, no problem. Go do it. So he did it. And it was brilliant. I loved That's it. Awesome. I'm like, I think I even tweeted it afterwards. I'm like, I need to do this more. Cause it, it yeah. was just such, I mean, it was probably because it was him too. Yeah. But ever since then, I've been practicing alternate assessment methods to the point now where I, in my organizational behavior class, I give them a menu of case studies. So, so in in the first half of the term or six or seven weeks, right? So uh, there's six or seven chapters. So I let them choose which chapters they want to be assessed on. And each chapter has a case study. And then I tell them exactly what the concept is that the case study is, is hammering in on. Right on. And I let them choose three out of the six. Okay. And so, and I call them appetizers, main course, dessert. And, and I'm like, you can come in, you can have all, you can have two appetizers and a dessert. You can have two dinners and a dessert. You can do whatever you want. You have to have three out of six. And it, and when I, when I'm like, even this last term, I'm going through describing it to my students. And they're like, are you serious? Like, you've never had this kind of stuff before. Like, and then, and, and in the, in the chat, you're like, this guy can't be serious. Like this, this, <laughs> this is a joke. Right. And I'm like, no, like, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a joke. This is, and, and they can't believe it. They're all over it. And uh, yeah, it's cool. So all that from my Saturday crowd. So I'm really glad that I got to teach that Saturday crowd. It is uh, fascinating how much the world opens up when you realize it's all that hidden curriculum stuff, right? Like it's one thing to mark an essay in an English class where a learning outcome is the ability to write an essay. Right. But if, if there's no learning outcome attached to this, you know, this particular increasingly archaic form of the academic essay, for example, or the long form answer or whatever it is, why are we torturing students through it? You know? And like, there are lots of courses where that is, there's a reason to do it. And I'm not mm-hmm. talking about that, but you know, 
it's, it's just so interesting how you can see students really take flight when you get them out of particularly essay anxiety mode. Like even mm-hmm. a student who, who doesn't have any sort of documentable issue with reading and writing, but who's just so has been so beaten down by the oh, yeah. way we teach writing yeah. that they yeah. don't find any joy in it, but there's some way of expressing their learning that they can find joy in. I, mm-hmm. I just think it's, um, ah, I, I think it's so empowering for instructors to get to that space. It's been it's it's a little more work on my part on the front end, oh, and and I have to admit work. I stole that idea from a high school uh, guy, a high school teacher that I saw on a TED talk. Like he oh, cool. he did this with his chemistry class or his bio or physics class. I can't remember, but I'm like this is brilliant. And then somebody asked him the question, like, or no, he he said somebody asked him the question one time. Well, how long did it take you? And he's like, it took me a year of planning and sorting mm-hmm. and getting all that stuff ready. And he goes, so it's not easy to get it ready, but once mm-hmm. you have it ready. He says it's so much easier to manage because everyone's motivation level goes up through the roof because one, you're allowing them choice Two, they actually feel that what they're doing has direct agency and application to their outcome. Like they're not just shooting for an arbitrary 88%. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I hate multiple choice. (laughs) I mean, I've seen so many of them and I've written so many of them. I just want to puke every time I hear that, that term. Mm -hmm. I get it. I get it. Why, you know, LMSs love them so much because they're just, you know, they can mark them in 3.8 seconds. Right. And so. Wow. I'm so struggling with the inhumanity of the way we've been delivering them since the pandemic hit, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading these academic integrity tips online (laughs) and it's like, give them 15 seconds per multiple choice question. Then they can't cheat. Yeah. They also absolutely can't learn anything from that experience either, except stress and terror, but okay. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and yeah, that topic comes up in my courses too. Or like, so the exams will have multiple choice on them. I'm like, no, no. Cause you know, that thing that you bought that you have to buy that textbook that you, that you have to buy, don't sell it unless you really need the money because it's a reference tool. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you graduate and you go into a, into a job, oh, there might be a situation that this textbook can help you with. So mm-hmm. now it becomes a resource for you. Yeah. And I'm, I don't really care that you can memorize 30 definitions in 30 hours and then puke them out in 30 minutes and get an A and then three hours later, can't remember anything. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I really just don't care about that. Sorry. That's my cat. All down. Is that your cat? <laughs> yeah. Georgie. He's, he's here. He's here. Hey, Georgie. It was his adoptiversary yesterday. We had him for one year. I saw that. Yeah. Is, he, is he over his little issue? <laughs> yeah, thankfully. It was gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have a dog. And when our dog eats certain things and has that kind of issue, yeah. Yeah. Not a good place. No, it's no, it's no. no. And he just eats everything. Like my mom. My mom thinks he might have pika, you know, like he just eats everything <laughs> he finds. He wants yeah. to eat a loaf of bread. Like he just, will eat any- oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just fully ate a loaf of bread. And uh, yeah, he's very oh. bad, but he's so cute. Yeah. Well, he's a cat, right? <laughs> it's like, how, how can you not like that? Right. It's true. Cause it's just the whole attitude too. It's like, yeah, yeah. I ate a loaf of bread. So you left <laughs> it on the counter. Fair game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know how like dogs have that thing where like they clearly feel that he's just yeah. like, don't leave bread out if you don't want to yeah. eat. And I don't know what you want from me. He, just, right. <laughs> he eats my husband's headphones. Like oh. <laughs> <laughs> devil buy like cheap earbuds to keep by the bed. Cause so the, yeah. our, our, our three-year-old often gets into bed at some point in the middle of the night. And so if you're yeah. like 
have insomnia or whatever, you want to listen to an audiobook. It's good to have a pair of earbuds handy. But I put mine in the bedside table drawer. Mm-hmm. My husband puts them on top bedside table. And it's yeah. like it's like Georgie's trying to train him because he just keeps eating them. <laughs> he gets them, he eats them. It's yeah. Georgie's like, when's this guy gonna get it? Yeah, right? When's he gonna get it? It's a slow learner. He needs some alternative maybe I write him some outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh Georgie, we this love is what you, you wanted me on the podcast for right to talk exactly. about the cat <laughs> exactly <laughs> if for nothing else it's just a decompression mode right it's just oh, like nice. in your day just yeah just let it out <sighs> right? this is a safe so place important. what can so they do important. fire us they can't fire us <laughs> maybe they can discipline us but they can't fire us oh so lord all that to say. so what's what's new for you what's top of mind for you right now the digital detox is on at the moment. I'm not sure right. when this episode is coming out, but it's running through until the 26th of February. Okay. This will be right after that. All right. Right on. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't edit that out. That'll be all good. <laughs> so it's good. But, well, people could go back and read the essays if they wanted to. We're mm-hmm. this semester, uh, we're focusing our digital detox on the idea of the post pandemic university. Mm-hmm. So, what do we yeah. want our institutions to look like after this is all gone? If it ever is, yeah. Look to the vaccination schedule again. Um, is so that is there, like I don't even know. I've heard there's a plan, but you know, so far, so far in Alberta, there's only 280 people that have got vaccinated. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I heard that I yesterday. I'm laughing instead of four million it. people in Alberta, and there's only 270 people vaccinated. Thank it's, you. It's Appreciate funny. that. We paid it's, how much for those? Yeah, good. Nice work. <laughs> Funny, Tim, because we're all going to die. So, yeah. <laughs> hilarious. Well, you know, um, those, those 270 people, they better be the most important 270 people in that <laughs> province. Better not be anybody else on that list that's not important. Lord. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And you got these social loafers, like that billionaire or millionaire or whatever, yeah. who just went up to the Yukon to get, oh, my God. Anyway, yeah. this is going to be scary. Florida. Apparently they're giving <laughs> them to Canadians right on the beach. You can just walk up. Hey, can I have a shot? <laughs> sure. Funk. <laughs> Need a prescription oh, for like, cannabis? We'll write that too. There you oh go. Oh God. <laughs> what even are we doing? It's like, what is this? Um, I don't know. So yeah, so that's happening. And I'm just sorry, I'm looking. Nobody can see me looking. I'm looking at my writing schedule to see what else I'm working on. But um, I don't know. It's busy time for us. It's January mm-hmm. still as we're recording this. So I'm very much in hands-on support mode with uh yeah. getting getting faculty and students back and up and into their classrooms and we're looking ahead to fall and wondering, you know, is it going to be hybrid? Is it going to be high flex? Is it going to be, uh, <laughs> say that like it's a karate move or something. I am worried that without proper institutional supports for these things, it's, I worry that high flex is just like the word that we're using for we installed a video camera in your classroom. Right. right. Like I, I'm, I don't know. I think most of my mental space right now is taken up with, anxiety about mm-hmm. where we're headed. So whether mm-hmm. it's the digital detox, like some, some deep dive and actual thoughtful reflections on it, or it's lying in bed at like three in the morning, wondering what September <laughs> of 2021 is going to look like, you know, it's yeah. all really productive time. I think that's the important lesson here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, I have a serious question. Does your, does your, yeah. um, does your institution have a policy on not that they're doing it now, but do they have a policy mm-hmm. on audio, audio recording in the classroom, like students audio recording the lecture? There is, as far as I know, no institutional policy on it. Instructors set their practice class by class. 
Okay. Yeah. Why do you, you know ask? Well, because my institution is just going through that policy now. I think it's out for general, I want to call it general consumption, but that's not mm. it. It's general consultation. Yes, that's the word. <laughs> general <laughs> consumption. Because um, everybody yeah. really feels like reading policy right now, right? So governance is in no way compromised well, by our levels of exhaustion and burnout. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's almost like having a, you know, a majority in government. You just do whatever you want. <laughs> do what you want. Um, it's no disparaging against my, against my institution. They're, they're doing it's a great everywhere. job. And I think it's a policy that needed to be done a long time ago because mm. I know in my own, like in my trades classes and even in my business classes, people have said, can I record this for later? Cause I like to listen to it on commutes and I'm like, well, no, I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. Because there's other students in the room and yeah. you know, they may not want to have their voice on tape and, and all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see where this policy falls out. I think it's going to go through. Um, and, and I know that there's been a lot of engagement from faculty on it and it's not around can't do it. You're infringing on my rights kind of conversation. It's mm-hmm. more like, how do we make sure we protect the students in the room who don't want to be recorded? Yeah. How do we provide safe, a safe place for them? And so those are good questions. And so I'm looking forward those to it. I just wanted to know if you guys had one. Not that I know of. Now you've got me curious, but I don't think so. Um, I know when I was an instructor at Douglas, it was always um, a case-by-case basis. And mm-hmm. I always said, like, if you don't mind putting the recorder up here, like next mm-hmm. to me, you can have my voice all you want. Right. I'll, and I'll ask you to turn it off during discussions, but it's probably the kind of thing that there needs to be more institutional policy on. Yeah. But I also worry anytime we get into an institutional policy space on that kind of thing, like it's like what you were talking about before with that student who had difficulty reading, but he didn't have any documentation. Mm-hmm. I always worry about anything that's predicated on students having the kind of verifiable documentation that gets them access to accessibility services because we just, we know how many students never get that documentation for whatever reason. And my worry always when we add a policy layer is that we, we create a crack for someone to slip through. So I'd be curious to see what that looks like. I'm uh, which is not to say that accessibility services doesn't do amazing work because they do. And I, I get why they have to have like, why there has to be a limit to to the flow at a certain point. Mm -hmm. I totally Mm -hmm. do. But um, you know, you look at the cost for an adult to get diagnosed with a learning disability and it's, Wild. I heard, Wild I heard it's in the three to four thousand dollar range. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. It can be depending on the suite of tests ordered and the number of hours of time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's uh I had a student once who he had let his IEP lapse after he left high school. He took two years off and came to college. Oh, okay. And that two years meant that that IEP was no longer viable. Really? Mm-hmm. In this kid's case, for whatever reason. And okay. so he had to go and pursue a new diagnosis. Oh, man. As an adult, which of okay. course MSP and BC doesn't cover once you're right. an adult. And it right. was really, you know, I was happy to work with him. He told me what his old English teacher used to do, and I was happy to just do it. But wow, the amount of advocacy he suddenly had to do for himself. Yeah. And, and I don't know, it's not like I have an answer to that, but I mean, mm-hmm. the answer to that really is universal design for learning. Right. But yeah. Anyway, I'm a well, downer just, today, Tim. I'm sorry. I take everything okay. just off a cliff. <laughs> well, you know, right into the dumpster fire. It's all good. Um, no, but you make a good point because my, my, my daughter uh, has some learning challenges. And uh, so she had a tutor her final year of high school. And it's because I'm in the system and I know that there's accessibility resource centers at most, if not all institutions we had her final psych assessment done 
just a couple months ago and had the report done and all that other stuff. Cause then it's covered. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think hers is good for a number of years. Good. It may, it may, let me, let me backtrack. It may depend on the institution's policy though. I think in this young man's case, it was his, it, he had had it done. He hadn't had anything done since grade nine, that IEP had covered oh, him all the way through high school. And then he'd okay. been out for two years with no new right. documentation. Yeah, that's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. Not that the diagnosis would change necessarily. Right. But no, but the needs might, but you yep. know, we just, we, we do such a poor job of supporting young adults. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I agree. don't mean us personally. I just mean like as a society. Right? No, no. Like the system. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 No, I get it. Um, good. So when are you going to write a book, Brenna? Everyone's <laughs> writing a book these days. So, you know, everyone's got time. God, I should show you the manuscript for the unfinished book that came out of my dissertation. I just never. I got it back from the first round of peer review and I, uh, I did all the edits and then I just never sent it back. Really? What did you write about? Uh, my dissertation was on Douglas Copeland. Okay. The writer. And, uh, it was about visual culture and Canadian literature and, uh-huh. uh, stuff like a thematic study of, uh, what's wrong with Kimlet through the, <laughs> through the lens of this one particular, using this one particular figure as a, a lens. And, uh, I just, I don't know. I would say like, oh, I had a kid and then I changed jobs, but I lost steam way before either of those two things happened. I, right. I, and it couldn't be because a PhD bled you dry too, right? Well, this is the thing, right? Like sitting down to write this single author monograph and, and feeling like, what is the point? And simultaneously mm. discovering blogging and realizing I could write something that like thousands of people would read. Bingo. And it would take a couple hours mm. <laughs> or I could... <laughs> <laughs> invest those hours in getting through like a page of revisions on this book mm-hmm. that like generously 25 people would read. <laughs> That's right. 25 of your closest friends and family. Right. Like I, God love them. My parents have a bound copy of my dissertation. They absolutely have not opened it. And they're my yeah. parents. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, That's right. I don't know. I, I periodically I actually have a sticky note on my wall that says decide what to do about book. So it's uh, funny that you say that. Okay. Um, I don't know. I would like to do something at some point. I would like to write a book about academic integrity, actually. Really? That yeah. would be cool. I'd buy it. <laughs> I would. I want to write a book about how this concept we have to, do we swear on the podcast? I can't remember. Go ahead. Okay, cool. So we do this thing about like this culture of academic integrity, right? But it's completely bullshit because yeah. it only, it's only, students who are responsible for this culture of academic integrity. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm really interested in the link between the way we treat student data in particular and mm. um, the sort of cavalier attitude we have towards yeah. it often and students own sense of like privacy. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm really interested. I'm so fascinated in your instructor buys a course and makes you pay for courseware. Yeah. And they didn't even write the assignment questions because Pearson wrote them. Mm-hmm. And then as a student, you're like, well, cool. I'll go buy my response to this. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. obviously, yep. Right. Yep. I mean, Julia, for a penny, I mean, for 400 bucks. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> Julia Christensen Hughes has this statement that students cheat when they feel cheated that came out of her early, earlier research on this issue sure. of academic integrity, like this pre-contract cheating kind of landscape. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think, I don't know. That's the thing I care about right now because I mm-hmm. feel like we we want to have this conversation about how students are cheaters and not how the system is sort of set up to feel like a game they can't possibly win. 
Right. Yeah. It seems like for me, whenever I hear that term academic integrity, of course (laughs) it depends on who I hear it from. (laughs) But once, when I was hearing it at the beginning of this whole thing, like back in April, May, which seems like two years ago now, um, My, my gut reaction was really, you want to talk about that? It's really just because you want to protect the work that you did and you don't want to do any more work. Like you don't, heaven forbid that you have to change an exam. Yes. Right. And then my second response, after I beaded that one down and not let it out of my, out of my mouth. (laughs) That's for the group chat, not for Twitter. That's right. That's right. Um, Yeah. Inside voice. Right. And uh, so the second question or the second thing that'll come up is like, Oh no, this is about really control. Isn't it Mm -hmm. like this? Now that the students aren't in the classroom, you feel a little more out of control and they have a little more autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make sure that you're still the important person in the room. Mm -hmm. And I know that that goes to a deep, dark place for some people, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I think if, I think if we're all honest and here we go, I'm going to open up a little bit. I think if we're all honest, we've all wrestled with that. Oh yeah. Right. Where, especially in, in, in our new stages of coming into, into, into higher ed, right. Because you got so much to prove and so many people are looking at you mm-hmm. and you've spent all this time getting ready to, to be there. Mm-hmm. You spent all this time, all this money, blood, sweat, tears, ink, everything to get in there. Mm-hmm. And now you're there and you're, and you're in there with people who have been in there for 20, 25 years. And they look at you as the new person on the block. Like you're not worth anything to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, heaven forbid, you're not on a tenure track, right? Because yep. if you're not on a tenure track, then what are you really doing here anyway? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm getting all emotional, but it's, uh, it just drives me crazy because if anything out of this pandemic has taught me is the absolute value of, of the student in the room. I got to take a sip of water here. Go for it. <clears throat> a little do they know it's not vodka. Um, anyway, um, <clears throat> pardon me. I will edit that out. So it's, it, it's taught me a lot about the value of the student in the room. Right. Yeah. And it's like, if, if, if I'm not trusting them to, to do the right thing, then I'm, I shouldn't be doing this thing called education. I just shouldn't be doing it. Right. And it always comes clear to me when I ask students in every class that I have, how many other classes are you taking? Mm. And Brenna, it's the majority are taking two, three mm-hmm. classes a term, mm-hmm. including mine. Mm-hmm. So they're taking a full load of, of classes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, how many of you are working part-time? Mm. Good number of them. How many of you are working full-time mm-hmm. and doing full-time school? A lot of them. And a lot of them are international students. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause that's, this is what they need to do to keep their visa, to stay in the country. Uh, you know, one thing after the other. And I'm like, okay, so the last thing I need to do is to be so draconian on you <laughs> that you, you just hate coming to class. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just, I'm getting to this point where I may, may even be there. I'm just, I'm done with that whole mindset. Yeah. So if you write a book on an academic integrity, I promise you on the air and I will not edit this out. I will buy it. I will buy copies of it and distribute it out because I'm, I'm okay having a conversation if it's really about what's best for the student, as well as what's best for the program and the institution and the industry that we're serving, because I get all that coming from a trades background, there's partnerships, there's industry, there's third party certifications. I understand all that. But for crying out loud, there's got to be a better way than hooking a camera up in front of me and a camera behind me, Mm -hmm. not letting me go to the bathroom in three and a half hours, 
flagging me if my eyes go off the screen, mm-hmm. not recognizing me if I'm not white and male. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm oh sorry, I'm getting on a box here right now. But no, it's, it's you're on the right <laughs> box. This is you know, important. And, and I won't use names because I don't want to end up in a slap suit like somebody else. <laughs> but go you link know, letter. You know, I agree with all that. By the way, against surveillance.net, people can go back and watch the the event we mm. did as fundraiser for Ian Linkletter and, and yes. donate if they haven't yet. Yep. Um there's a there's a word that you didn't say in that, but I think is central to what you were talking about. And it's something I'm thinking a lot about lately with the move to online teaching and the resistance to giving up the lecture as a structure, even through all of this. And that is ego. And it's, you know, when you set off the top, the idea of control, something that, sorry, when you set off the top, this idea of control that we all struggle with. um, I, for me, for me, ego is, was essential, is a central component that I struggle with. And I say this is somebody who has like several podcasts yeah. and really enjoys being listened to. Like, yeah. I really like it. Um, but I think, you know, the more and more I see how the choices that get made in the classroom so often have more to do with the instructor's ego than with the student learning. Yeah. I mean, we have known for how long that the lecture is not the best mode, either of content delivery or of learning, right? And yet it persists. Why does it persist? Well, it persists because we've created classrooms so large that Mm -hmm. active learning techniques are very difficult. And we have created a a professoriate so uh, precarious that the idea of being able to invest time and energy is almost impossible when you're cobbling together a teaching load across multiple campuses. Mm -hmm. But where faculty are tenured or tenure track or full-time or regularized or whatever your language is at your institution, Mm -hmm. the lecture persists there too. And I think sometimes, you know, I've had lovely, well-meaning faculty chat with me about how much they we're frustrated with the asynchronous learning experience of the fall because not because students didn't do well, the students did do well and not because students didn't learn the material because these instructors were really happy with the learning outcomes and really happy with the final assessments, but because it's pretty friggin' lonely right, to yep. not have that interactive component. And if your course is set up really well asynchronously, you may, might not see that student every week. They might check yep. in with you every three weeks. They might check in with you once a month. Yep. And um, yep. gosh, that's hard thing to be okay with, right? Mm-hmm. When we identify, when we define ourselves, I'm going to pause my chair. It's going to be loud for a second. Yep. When we identify ourselves as teachers, when we define ourselves by those interactions in the classroom and we define them in a really particular way that we were trained for mm-hmm. our whole lives um, because of the education system we came up in, I just think. I think that piece wrestling with that piece of our ego that that believes we have to be at the center of the learning experience. I think in many ways, that's the hardest part. And that's why yeah. things like, you know, e-proctoring services are evil. <laughs> Turn it yep. in is evil. Like these are mm-hmm. evil surveillance technologies that we are turning against our students. Yeah. But they got a foothold in education because they were already they are speaking to a, a, they're speaking to an aspect of education that was already there. They didn't Mm -hmm. create the desire for surveillance. They didn't create the desire for control. 
that was there. They're exploiting it for sure. They're doing it in ways that I think we don't realize the larger impacts of and won't for some time. But mm. there's a part of all of us when we're in the classroom that I think I think really good pedagogy is at least as much about fighting against that person who is so used to being the expert, the the control, the the star of the yeah. learning experience. Yeah. And um and that is hard. That that stuff's intractable, you know, like that's the stuff that to have a conversation about it, you have to have a space where folks can be really vulnerable and mm-hmm. and where they can test and practice and challenge themselves and each other without fear of reprisal, which, you know, like I've worked in departments where I sure didn't want to tell anybody about what was going on in my classroom for fear yeah. of for fear that it would be disapproved of in a really public yep. way. Right. Yep, so for sure. I don't know. I'm rambling, but I think until, until we can have that conversation, I don't, mm. I don't know how we get rid of the rest of it. Cause I think it's all just a symptom of that, of, of ego. Yeah. I agree with you. I, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure there's a, there's a good solid answer. The one thing that keeps coming to my brain is uh, in the, in the TVET world, we have a provincial instructors diploma program. Mm. And so, uh, when somebody gets hired into, into an institution to teach TVET, uh, it's, they either have to come with that or they have to, they have to get hired with the inclination, quote unquote, promise that they'll complete the program. Mm -hmm. It's a great program. I'm not disparaging it at all. When I took it, there was no trades focus. So oftentimes I was the only trades person in the class, Mm -hmm. which again, I didn't really care about because I had the agility to look at things slightly differently and not be offended by the fact that they were looking at things through a different lens than what I was experiencing, especially when it came to classroom management stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the level, and I mean, yeah. So you know what I mean? Like the level of safety in my classroom is, is mm-hmm. exponentially higher than the level of safety in, in somebody else's classroom just mm-hmm. because of the virtue of what we do. And, um, and so I often think surely there has to be some piece of that provincial instructors diploma training that is more pedagogy focused than this is a learning outcome. This mm-hmm. is how you build a lesson plan. This is a Gantt chart. This is a rubric, right? Like, and like I, about, and I like know I'm about, speaking out of ignorance a tiny bit, because I know that there's one institution that's offering some trades flavored mm. options in it. And, and I'm, I'm speaking out of ignorance and I, and I, and I, I admit that. But I'm I'm more and more convinced that they're they're. I'm well. Let me back up and say it this way: I would hope that there is a shift to a, a pedagogical perspective of the PID program, rather than here are the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it's both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you see, in in teacher education, they finish their undergrad and then they have to go in for another year. And in one institution close to my house, it's a year and a half now. They extended it to eighteen months, where you learn not just this is a lesson plan, this is classroom management, and but you learn the pedagogical foundations behind all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm wondering if that's a component that's not being looked at deeply enough. I think you're probably really right. The other piece that I think is missing from a lot of the way we talk about teaching and learning at the post-secondary level, you know, 
it sounds trite to say care, right? Especially mm-hmm. because since the pandemic, we're all, everything is care. But I right. do think that the, the thing that's changed my approach to teaching and learning most profoundly has been adopting an ethics of care philosophy that right. to start with, to start from the position not of a learning objective, although I, those are important, right? Students mm-hmm. are taking the course for a reason. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I get you the learning objective, but I haven't learned anything about you as a person, I haven't gotten you through the material safely, mm-hmm. I haven't given you a reason to understand why that learning objective matters. Like, like care has a lot of different facets, right? Sure. Yep. If you, if you learn the learning objective, but you don't care about it, you don't understand where it fits in the larger scope of the discipline or the profession, then I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that the learning objective has really landed. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, particularly when I think about educational technologies and I think about my work, trying to help faculty make good choices about educational technologies. I always start from the two questions. What problem are you trying to solve? And who profits or benefits from this tool that you want to use? And then what's the balance between those two things, right? And if the cost is too high, we don't do it. And I, I think that I think that more teaching and learning needs to be centered in an expectation that we have a responsibility to our students mm-hmm. that is centered in a place of care. Because I think that by leaving it up to individual instructors to make that choice, mm-hmm. that's, that labor becomes highly feminized. That labor becomes yeah. taken on by primarily marginalized scholars, particularly in faculty and teachers and staff, particularly for marginalized students, right? Mm-hmm. That, that labor be, and that labor is invisible because it's not expected and it's not anything you ever get rewarded right. for. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think it's critical. And I think that if the pandemic has taught me anything, it's that if we don't start from care, none of the rest of it actually matters. Yeah. Good point. Really good point. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Who needs care? (laughs) (laughs) No, it makes so much sense though. Right. And it's like, I know I can't solve the, every problem that's going on. Right. But it's, yeah. And I know there's a lot of great people out in the system that are doing great work that, you know, ashamedly won't receive any recognition for the work they're doing. And And I wonder too, if they even care about that, right. They're mm. just like this because they look at it. This is my job. This is what yeah. I get paid to do. And, and I just need to do this and I need to be flexible to change with the times. Uh, contrast that with comments that I've heard from certain faculty about, well, it's not my job to, to do that. That's your job. It's like, <clears throat> you know, you're making a pretty good wage, right? Like, yeah. you, know, you know, you've got it, you've got it pretty good, right? Yeah. Like, you know, let's, let's not use the, the, the common vernacular around that, but you know, you got it pretty easy, right? And now yeah. you don't want to do anything because it's not your job. I'm like, ah, I just don't get it, but you well, know, I do get it, but it's like, it's like, come on, people give your head a shake. I'm really, I am frustrated right now because I have seen so many people work so hard to build something really positive for their students this semester that um, the folks who are are not willing to put the time in um, 
not because of structural constraints, but just because of will. I, I, I find, you know, we're 10 months into this thing. I'm finding it harder and harder to, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just finding that harder and harder to deal with. I got to say, because yep. the people who are working hard are killing themselves, you know, yeah, and that's, sure. and the imbalance is, I thought maybe the imbalance would kind of even out as people mm-hmm. got back into the classroom, but I, I see it getting, I realize this isn't a video podcast and I'm making a lot of hand gestures. But I see okay. that gap just widening, <laughs> the you know, disparity is getting larger. It is getting larger. Yeah. 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 And that's, I find that uh, a difficult piece because from my perspective as faculty support, I have to help all those people equally and i don't want to <laughs> yeah no i hear you i hear you i hear you yeah. okay, i hope my yeah. boss is listening <laughs> yeah. yeah well hi brian how you doing <laughs> i think he'll be surprised <laughs> yeah. <with> this content <laughs> As he'll just go for another walk <laughs> oh all good so tell us about your podcast you've got three of them now Two and one is in process. So, um, I, my podcast, you got, this is our, it's an internal podcast really for Mm -hmm. TRU faculty and staff. Although I I think folks have been enjoying it outside of our, our walls. Mm -hmm. Um, it was designed in the fall because we thought we wouldn't have time or bandwidth or space for programming in the fall. So Mm -hmm. I had this idea, we'll do this podcast. We'll meet people where they're at once a week. We'll talk about what they need to know and where they need support. And then we decided to also offer programming in the fall. <laughs> so now we just also have the podcast, but it's Oops. been a lot of fun. It gives yeah. me the opportunity. I interview a member of our community every week about what they're doing in the classroom. Or, um, you know, I talk to folks like the learning strategists about what their work is and how they can support. It's designed for faculty to know where to go to get the supports they need. Okay. Um, but it's for the campus community as a whole. Uh, and then I also host a podcast called Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, which is about young adult literature and their film adaptations. And that is really fun. Okay. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good times. It's good times. Um, we have a small but mighty band of listeners. Uh, and then my new po- project, which is years out from fruition, um, I'm one of the uh, three new podcasts that's being developed Um through a shirk grant that's held by uh hannah mcgregor at simon fraser university and siobhan mcmenemy at wilford laurie university press and it's um the amplify podcast network it's an attempt to establish a peer-reviewed scholarly podcasting network in canada okay and so the podcasts all go through an open peer review process Um, and so I'm just in the very early stages of that, but that will be a teaching and learning podcast with a focus on educational technologies. So when you say open peer review, so you record Mm -hmm. a podcast on some kind of learning theory or concept, Mm -hmm. you send it to a bunch of people to, so they listen to it and then they give you their response critique. Yeah. So the way it's going to work for this project, uh, so it's based, the peer review model is based on Hannah McGregor's podcast, Secret Feminist Agenda, which goes through a peer review process on a season, seasonal basis. So um, in her case, the episodes go out live and she gets peer review feedback after the fact. For these new podcasts that are being created, um, we will, we will record the whole season in rough cuts. Mm -hmm. It will go out to uh, peer reviewers who will then respond and we will have a chance to make edits just like mm-hmm. you would with a scholarly article or a monograph. We'll have a okay. chance to make edits and then yep. release it. Um, 
under the auspices, very fancy auspices of a university press that's going to manage all of the peer review components. So for me, it's a very different way to think about podcasting, a lot yeah. less immediate and a lot less sort of audience response focused and a lot right. more like I'm trying to think of it in my head, more like the creation of an open educational resource. Mm -hmm. um, just in a different form. Uh, but it's really exciting to feel like a part of building something. Mm -hmm. um, part of this grant is building the infrastructure. So like a mechanism by which one would submit podcast audio for peer review and right. a mechanism by which those podcasts would go through processes to be transcribed mm -hmm. and to have their metadata done properly for our archival purposes and stuff. So right. sort of an attempt to think through how we might do podcasting in a way that the Academy can quote unquote recognize without mm -hmm. losing track of what makes podcasts great. And I, it's a tension that I, struggle with all the time as we work through mm -hmm. this process this project i have to say because i keep forgetting that they're not going to get released until like 2022 or something right. <laughs> it's like right. way in the future yeah uh which is not normally how i think about podcasts normally i am editing the podcast like moments before i <laughs> <laughs> intend it to be released yeah, yeah exactly yeah. just like me today i, I sent uh I, I well it'll be out by the time people listen to this so uh i had an opportunity to sit down with robin DeRosa. Nice. And oh, I know it's going to be a, well, people have already listened to it by this recording, but it was awesome just to sit down with her and yeah, she's a fan of mine. Oh no, I'm a fan of hers. She's not a fan of me. Let me, Robin, sorry. That was awesome. Yeah. And, uh, oh, now I'm all embarrassed, but, um, anyway, uh, so this is, that's an interesting way to approach a podcast because mm -hmm. like for me, it's just a freedom of expression thing. Right. Totally. And, and I like to have conversations with people that I like, and, and even some people on the fringe that I don't understand. Uh, well, not, let me put it another way, <laughs> man, I'm really misspeaking now, um, <laughs> of, uh, that have perspectives that I want to learn more about, um, coming from, uh, backgrounds that I have no idea how that may affect the way that they go about their higher education experience. Yeah. So I really like that. And of course, there's the trade stuff that comes in uh, yeah. as well, but it's really just, it's, it's, it's really just me outward focusing, right? Like it's just, there it is. And yeah. I edit. And like you said, sometimes I'm editing the day before it's released. So, yeah. which is yeah. the tie back to Robin DeRosa because I finished editing today and I sent it to her and kind of <laughs> goes out tomorrow. So sorry, yeah. Robin, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think. It, so the goal is to kind of find a way to maintain the, the accessible nature of podcasting, mm -hmm. if I'm using the fancy shirk language as a knowledge and mobilization of vehicle mm -hmm. uh, that's accessible, a way of getting publicly funded scholarship into the hands of the people who are funding it, right? Which mm -hmm. has always been a frustration I've had with scholarly publishing. It's like all this public money goes into the institutions, the grants, the journals to create something that like nine people <laughs> read. and right. Even if it does have wider applicability, how do we get that applicability into the hands of the people who want to actually use it? And so yeah. I've long been a fan. I love podcasts for knowledge mobilization because I think that they are um, so immediate and intimate and engaged and like 
people find podcasts in their most intimate moments, right? Like you're mm. washing the dishes, you're waiting for your toddler to fall asleep. You're, you know, like there's a mm. million places that are so private. You're on a walk by yourself, so private and so personal. And yet mm-hmm. podcasts find you there. And so from that perspective, as a teaching and learning tool, they have so much value. Mm-hmm. And yet the work of scholarly podcasting is so often done by people on the periphery, marginalized either by identity or by their role or by the institution at which they work. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a way that we can leverage reputation, re- leverage the structure of peer review as a, as a signal of value so that those folks aren't toiling in the margins anymore, but that can mm-hmm. become actually a centerpiece of a research agenda without losing what makes podcasts great. And I don't actually know if the answer is yes, yes, right? <laughs> right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm gonna feel the same way about making this podcast that I do about making what I think of as my fun podcasts. Right. Um, but I'll let you know. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> I, do you wonder if this, this medium will, will bleed into a tenure process or even a dissertation process? I, what I want ideally is for there to be a mechanism by which a tenure committee or a dissertation committee can see the value of this kind of work Mm -hmm. without it being co-opted. And so, you know, it's interesting. I can see it in certain scholars I approach, you say, Hey, I have a podcast. And it's like, all right, I'll have this podcast. And then you say, I'm working on this peer reviewed podcast project. Oh, like suddenly I'm interested. I don't believe it's real, but I'm interested in it as an idea. Right. (laughs) And, um, and I think, I don't know the goal I was reading, uh, for book club today, Kathy Davidson has this line in the essay we were reading for book club and it was, um, be an activist in whatever realm you have control. Right. Which is something that I, I take pretty seriously as a life philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so to me, this is like, can we create something for the Academy that is a little bit more accessible and a little bit more democratic and find the language to describe its value to people who might not see the value otherwise. Right. And again, I don't know if the answer is yes. <laughs> I hope it well, is. That's the interesting thing though, right? Is that you don't, you don't know if the answer is yes, but are you okay with that? If the answer is no, are you okay with that? I think I have the freedom to be okay with that. Okay. This project, the role that I have at TRU, this will be a centerpiece of the work that I'm doing for the next three years. And, and mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. I will be disappointed if I can't see a way for it to become, for podcasting to become more usable as a scholarly medium Mm -hmm. for folks who are out there already doing the work, you know? Right. Um, I'm okay with it for me. I'm not okay with it for everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I think I understand. Yeah. Um, Cause you mentioned uh, earlier on in the recording about blogging, right. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been on and off blogging forever. Like I, I think I still have an original blogger account somewhere. Nice. I'd have to look it up somewhere, but I think I still have one. Um, but, and, and the debate has been going on for the last couple of years is blogging dead. Is it alive? Is it, you know, Mm -hmm. just, you know, has it, is it somewhat, you know, in life support or like what's Mm -hmm. happened to it? And there are people who argue, no, no, it's still as, as, as important as it was five years ago. 
And then I listen to people talk about podcasting and they're almost sort of starting to say the same thing. It's like, well, yeah. you know, there's 500,000 podcasts <laughs> out there and you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's 15 podcasts start every hour and you know, 20 die every week. And you know, if, if, and if you make it past episode 50, you probably have a good chance to keep going in the longevity and what is really longevity anymore in a mm -hmm. podcasting world. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause you look at guys like Joe Rogan that are up to like 1300 podcasts now or whatever he's got and doing such good work for society. Well, yeah, true. And then there's <laughs> other podcasts too. I think, um, there's some, there's some good educational podcasts that are up in the four or five, 600 range too. Right. Yeah. And like, Oh my no, goodness. It's true. It's true. There is good work going on out there and it doesn't all have to be I guess what I wouldn't want to have happen from a project like this is that that your work has to go through these structures in order to be of value. Right. But I just want the I want the option there in a way that mm -hmm. can be quantified for these committees because like the the goal the goal is ultimately to burn it down. But what do you do with the people who are in the house in the meantime? You know, Don't say that too loud. I know people who will really do that. They'll just burn it down because they're all good about that. I have to stop saying it. I say it in book club like once a week. Let's just burn this down. Like, not helpful, Brenna. Please stop burning things well, down. It's okay. It's good burning it down. It's not a bad metaphor. Um, <laughs> so I want to really uh, honor your time and and so thanks for being on the show. I got one more question for you, it's, and it's yeah. all about me because you know. I just want to make sure I get a little bit of me in here. Huh. Um, <laughs> that sounds so bad. What can, what can I do yeah. to keep my pedagogy centered on the right things? What, what oh. can I do besides rewind and listen to this episode? <laughs> Definitely rewind and listen to the episode. I think that, I think that we always need to take a step back and look at our courses at the beginning as they're, in process and at the end and figure out the why behind every component of the course. And sometimes that conversation is really hard to have mm -hmm. with yourself, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, every course has different objectives. You set a course theme that's going to change and, and add to the objectives potentially depending on your, your discipline. And, but I remember doing this exercise once when I was, you know, getting towards being established, still mm -hmm. feeling pretty insecure as an instructor. And I used to write my lectures out, like write them out. Like I had oh. a script. I would come to class with my script. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was really anxious that I would miss something or that I wouldn't yeah. give a citation. I was terrified about not giving citations. <laughs> Did I know nobody else was doing that? Um, <laughs> terrified of that. Um, <laughs> And just stop I, doing that in our PhD. Seriously, we're done. I've already cited everybody. Now I'm just good. That's right. <laughs> um, I'm in. <laughs> uh, but it was around year four or five of teaching. And I was doing this sort of like look back at my semester. And I, I was going over these lectures and I was like, who are these four? <laughs> Three reading them. And I was like, I really enjoyed the process of writing those lectures because it made me feel very in control of the material. Mm -hmm. And it made me feel, um, like I could get all my jokes in, you know, like, right. I was, you know, I felt really good about, <laughs> about a finished product, Yeah. but I'm not, I, if I was honest, that was the purpose of writing out the lectures, right? There was right. absolutely nothing about the student in the process of writing out those lectures. It didn't impact their learning. Um, it made me feel in control. Right. And that was when I really finally learned to give up the lecture as a structure and started to have started to teach the 
my English course is more like modeling the skills of an English scholar, which is like, let's walk into this text together and read it attentively together. Um, but I, that, that lesson for me of why is each piece of the course here and who is it for? Because oftentimes, you know, when you go through that process, you find a reading that you've been teaching for 15 years because you love it. And there's something about it that really speaks to you personally. But if you're honest with yourself, students haven't, haven't been connecting with it for a while. Right. Right, Or there's an assignment and you just love the assignment. You love the way you structured it. Like it seems so fun, but it hasn't been landing or the students aren't doing with it what you wanted them to or what you hoped they would. And I think if you can go through that process and ask, why is it there and who is it for? And, you know, the the uh, old school teaching and learning center person in me would say, "Okay, well, you got to make sure everything in there is tied to a learning objective. Right. But I think what you really need to do is understand what the students are getting out of it. And sometimes that's a real formal learning objective. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's understanding Mm -hmm. the way the discipline thinks better or just fun (laughs) engagement, right? Connection to the material. All these things are important too. But I think you can start there without having to, you know, read a lot of theory or learn a lot of jargon it's intuitive and it Mm -hmm. draws on your experience and all it asks of you is to be honest with yourself. And that's enough. (laughs) I think, especially if you're new to the conversation, if you were a brand new person, if you were two or three years in and you were feeling like you just didn't know where to go to start rethinking, I think that that's all you have to do because at the core, I think we devote ourselves to teaching and learning because because we do care because we feel like we can share something with students that is meaningful. And if we can strip back everything else, the ego and the policies that get in the way and the frustrations and the overwork and the burnout and just focus on how we deliver that thing to our students better than anybody else can. Mm -hmm. I think if we could start there, then we're all doing pretty okay. Nice. Okay. Okay. I'm doing that. I'm going to do it. Oh, you're fine. You're great. Look Uh, at you. I got a lot of work to do, honestly. You know what though? We all do, right? And I think that one of the biggest lies about teaching and learning in post-secondary that we were all fed all the way through is that that A, that teaching is secondary to Mm -hmm. some other more important thing, and B, that you can either teach or you can't, right? And I think higher ed has really based itself on that for a long time. And I don't think it's true. I think, I think anybody can teach because we can all connect with each other. And that's really, that's the centerpiece. And from there, from there, it's strategies and it's things you can read about in books and go to workshops and learn. The thing you got to start with is like, why am I here? What am I offering students that nobody else can? And how do I demonstrate that I care? And we can all get better at all three of those things all the time, but we all already have all three of those things inherent in us. Yeah. Those are really good points. Do you have time for one more question? Yeah. Okay. So what would you say to the person who thinks and can be persuaded otherwise, but thinks of their teaching role as one of, it's a craft. Mm. Like it's, 
mm-hmm. it's 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 something that you may or may not have quote unquote gifted skills in mm-hmm. or been around people who have had that influence on you but you're willing to learn you're willing to hone you're willing to gain new tools and practice and try and try and try because you know that content is content mm-hmm. and and in a digital world whether it's written or video or audio, you know that the material is out there, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe one thing that this person thinks about is the content is content, but what's going to, what's it going to, what's the difference between a student coming to my class or a student going to another class with the same content? What's the difference going to be? Mm. What would you say to the person that thinks about their, their teaching role as a craft I think that that's, I think we should, I think it is. I think like all meaningful craft, teaching rewards time spent on it. It rewards Mm -hmm. dedication. It rewards our energy. It, unfortunately, many of us came to this craft through a pretty garbage apprenticeship program, (laughs) right? Get it. Like we, we learned from people who didn't care about teaching mm-hmm. and we apprenticed maybe with people who didn't care about teaching, or we came up through programs where we were told that if we really made it, we wouldn't have to worry about this stuff. Right. Right. I still remember the advisor when I told him I was taking a job at a community college and he, he looked at me and he said, but you're good enough for a real job. Oh, yeah. ouch. Yeah, <laughs> because also market forces suggest, sir, I am not. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Right? So uh, we, we all came up through bad apprenticeships for most of us. Some of us got lucky, but most of us came up through bad, bad apprenticeships or at least had this bad apprenticeship experience. So, mm-hmm. yes, it is a craft. And yes, you offer something that nobody else can to your students. I hope you do, right? I hope your outlook mm-hmm. on the world. I hope your outlook on the material. I hope the way you connect with particular students works differently for you than for other people. It should. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that the approach you have right now is necessarily the best or only approach because mm-hmm. you're the product of a series of pretty crappy apprenticeships. So mm-hmm. all I would ask of that individual is to be open to other ways of looking at teaching and learning that they haven't considered before and to look at the way other people practice the craft, right? Like maybe you're going to find a really cool new way to glaze that pot because you took a second to look around and see what else was going on. Right. Because no craft person works in a vacuum, no craft person works without community. Yeah, you're right. I mean, historically that's why guilds were established. It's mm-hmm. for the, the dissemination of knowledge and technique and skill and learning new things. And God, we could out. use a guild for teaching and learning, couldn't we? I think we could. Good. <laughs> I think yeah. there might be one coming up. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. enough of that. I don't want to don't want to keep going here. Anyway, thank you so much okay. for your time. Really appreciate thank you. it. Always an honor to speak with you. And uh, oh, love. you're always so fun, Tim. We didn't talk about Cascadia at all. No, we didn't. Well, we can do it again. We'll do okay, it again. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> okay. Sounds like a plan. Thanks. Right. Take care. Take care. We'll talk soon. You bet. Bye. 
Hey, thanks again for taking the time to listen to this podcast with Brenna Clark Gray. Uh, it was really an honor to have her on the show, and uh, she's such a hoot. So inspiring. Thanks, Brenna, for uh, being on the show, and we'll have to have you back again soon. Praxis Pedagogy, if you didn't know, is the podcast where we work to center our practice with solid pedagogy and build a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in student experience. So if you like this podcast, would you mind subscribing to it? And if you liked it even more than that, would you mind telling your friends and colleagues about this podcast? It would be awesome if more people began listening to this. It'd be awesome to get your feedback, any ideas you may have on how I can make this podcast better, how I can center my own pedagogy when it comes to doing the work that I do. Anyway, thanks again for taking the time. Really appreciate you being here. Take care. We'll see you soon.